of this temple <clears throat> for me is the stillness of it. <clears throat> There's a building purposely made, <clears throat> purposely designed for <clears throat> what is a high noting or containing silence and stillness. So when they architect first came to see me about what, what I had in mind in building this the temple you know I was, I was being facetious so I said uh, oh, I expect you to build a temple that as soon as stressed out Londoners come in it as soon as they enter the door they go into a state of stillness and silence <clears throat> and so uh, and then we go ha 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 and I didn't, wasn't expecting that. I was more or less like uh, expecting the impossible. But actually, I, I feel that the architect succeeded in doing this because this is what happens to me anyway. Even though I'm not a stressed-out Londoner. Let's notice the difference. For those of you who remember how we used to meet in the sala and the the shrine there in the cellar and uh, even though you know it was quite alright it, it was a bigger space than we were ever used to when we moved here to Amravati and then we had bigger halls and rooms and more spacious places to to meditate in but uh, still it was uh, basically the school's dining hall before and and it's always had a dining hall atmosphere. And then we'd have meetings and eat in there and tea in there. Well, this, this building was designed just for, really, for meditation. For puja, chanting, meditation. So the idea of creating an atmosphere that doesn't particularly distract you. So the architect was keen on using your natural materials, you know, things that aren't highly cosmetic, that you don't have to tart up and decorate with gold and, and uh, have a lot of pictures and things around to distract the mind. So they use the oak and the green oak and the bricks are all handmade 
You know, they're not those kind of bricks you get. One is just like another. They're all quite unique if you begin to notice. Each brick has its own character. And then the roofing tiles also. Handmade roofing tiles. You notice the, the handprint if you go in and look up above the, each one on the inside has a handprint. And these are kind of terracotta, earth, and brick, and oak, and the, this part of the floor is uh, limestone from Italy, and then the tiles on the other side are from Spain, and then the windows are from Sweden or Denmark, someplace like that. <clears throat> so this is uh, creating an environment, a situation, you know, that, that uh, is a nature itself, the less we try it, unless we interfere with it or impose our will upon it, the, then we, we, we easily find uh, peace or tranquility, like in, we oftentimes go into forests or find looking at the sky or in the meadows or valleys, mountaintops, waterfalls, lakes, the seaside, all these are ways of getting away from the stress of the human mind that, Im that imposes, that that impinges on us, our own mind and the mind of others. You notice you go into a city that's like London, uh, where everything is a, a man-made, manufactured, some of it quite brilliant, beautiful buildings and parks and that, but also there's a, there's a sense of an ego, a strong sense of human beings imposing their wills upon nature. So, just noticing how, you know, the more materialistic the city, then the more strong that feeling is. And I was in Benares the last uh, uh, in January, February, March, we were uh, you know, living in the old part of the city, near the Ganges on the Ghats, and just uh, and even though this is a rather crowded place with it's kind of almost medieval and narrow lanes, we arrived in the when and they're having a cold spell. So we we took the train from Madras, and and the train was about eight hours late in arriving, or I think ten hours or so, because of fog. And when and in Madras was nice and warm, by the time we got to Benares, it was so cold. And I'd only taken my three robes with me, you know, like a light robe material, didn't have anything warm. So we got out of the train, and it was all foggy and cold, and and uh, going into the, we decided we spend the first night in a hotel, so we went to this hotel and then we found a place to live, but 
to get to the place that we eventually stayed in for two months, it was, the lanes were so narrow that these auto rickshaws and taxis couldn't get there. So we had to, you know, carry our bags, our backpack, through these narrow lanes. And, and it was still cold and kind of gray and dreary and the narrow lanes and Indians, uh, their custom is to throw everything out inside of the house into the lane. So you're going, and all the cows that live in these lanes defecate all over the place. So you're wading through a cold gray narrow lane uh, with a lot of uh, cow dung in it and trash thrown out into the lane and the lanes are crowded with people all cold and uh, carrying his backpack and it looked pretty bleak and then we had to, it was like going into the Kasbah or something into a maze so you kind of wind anyway you don't know where you're going somebody's taking you someplace and you end up in at the place we stayed which is quite a nice house and uh, then two months living there, things changed. Not so much, you know, the weather got warm and, and even hot, but, the, but also the way of looking at it changed. The things that seemed bleak or uh, offensive or upsetting or distressing suddenly didn't anymore. And one thing, when you're living in there, you feel this tremendous sense of uh, sacred because it's a holy city and you, you just notice this feeling this, this atmosphere that pervades it of, uh, of sacredness everything is like the river the rivers say everything around it the, the pujas that the Hindus perform every, the shrines to all the different deities there's Ganesha shrines, Shiva lingams, and Mother Kali shrines, and all kinds of shrines everywhere. You know, wherever you go, whatever lane you go up, you run into I don't know how many little shrines by Bodhi trees or in niches. So you begin to to feel this sense of uh, of the sacred, and it's a different feeling than when you're in a modern you know, swinging city like London. Well, later we went on to New Delhi, which was, uh, you know, we lived in, the, my friend has a nice big kind of house in the posh part of New Delhi, so we were living with the elite in wide avenues designed by uh, England, the English colonialists. <laughs> and, uh, and yet it didn't have the same kind of quality of the sense of the sacred that I experienced in these narrow lanes in Benares. The atmosphere then of a sacred city or a holy place, like going to the Buddhist shrines in India, isn't it? Somehow you can read about them or see videos or slideshows about the holy places, but it's very different being there in person because uh, it's, it's no longer you're, you're, you're there, you're, you're fully conscious, your consciousness is present with the, all that's 
uh, is there. Some of it you like and appreciate, others you find annoying, but basically a place of pilgrimage or a holy place, uh, even with, with uh, the oftentimes way modern tourists and, and tours and that tend to uh, create uh, an atmosphere that sometimes is a bit offensive, yet the actual shrines themselves or the feeling around them I found quite powerful in a good way. Because it always directs you, you know, you're, you're, you're looking at the world in a different way, as sacred rather than as just a material world, you know, for, for my convenience, wanting everything efficient and clean and ordered and <clears throat> on time and and everything just so, you know, I can feel secure and, and I can trust that this is going to happen and the train will arrive on time and the lift will work and streets are clean and, and we don't allow cows to wander the streets in, in London. Forbidden. Not in India. But cows are sacred in India. So that's another way of looking at cows, isn't it? Now we never look at cows as sacred. You know, we see them as commodities, you know, things you use to get milk out of or eat. So the kind of materialist mind, you know, you see a cow and you, it belongs in a pasture, you know, and then it's used for, uh, for our convenience. But in India, cows are sacred animals, so they're respected and they kind of wander freely around, even in modern cities like New Delhi. So then the efficient side of my mind is you're wandering through these narrow lanes in Benares, you know, and, you, and a cow is blocking the lane. And you've got to maneuver around this cow, and everybody's doing it in their own way. And then my efficient Western mind says, you know, they ought to outlaw cows on these lanes. They shouldn't let cows wander these lanes. That's how I first felt, because I wasn't used to kind of squeezing my body by the rear end of a cow through a narrow lane. <laughs> and afraid it might, something might spill out on my robes. <laughs> so then, um, after a while just contemplating this, this, this kind of efficient, functional Western mind that I have, you know, it, it always, it, you know, tends to complain when things aren't you know, if there's a cow in the way, it'll complain about the cow and then want to make a law to outlaw cows in these narrow lanes because cows belong in pastures, don't they? And everybody knows that. But everybody in India learns to accept this, you know, so you find the people just learning to live with cows, learning how to walk around them. And, uh, and after a while, as I stopped this, grumbling tendency, 
and just accepted it, I found, began to rather like it, in fact. You know, the, these lanes were really interesting and kind of colorful. And, and, uh, and when you start looking at it in terms of an open experience rather than from some preconditioned mindset, you know, of how life should be according to a Western way of thinking, and you begin to see all kinds of things, of, of life, of beauty, uh, of interest, and, of, and, so mu and most of it around the sacred. Because there's all kinds of little niches with, with things in them, little, that it must be incredibly old. They've been painted over so many times with vermilion paint that some of the shrines, you can't tell what the original God was. And that's another thing, isn't it, in, in the, the, the Western mindset, where you're brought up as a monotheist, like I was. You know, so you're, you know monotheism is a very uh, exclusive way of looking at everything. <clears throat> There's only one God, and it's ours. <laughs> and anyone else's is, you know, is a false God. So you, and you've got these commandments about not bowing to graven images and worshipping uh, animals or, or strange forms. So you've got this as a, as a kind of monotheistic Judeo-Christian programming. Then being a Buddhist for most of my life anyway, I'm really, you know, I'm definitely... And that's had the, the strongest effect over the Judeo-Christian conditioning of childhood. But also that has an influence. I can't deny that affects experience. But also because of the power of emptiness, the, the way that in Buddhism we, we realize or recognize emptiness, as the, as the natural state of being. That means we, <clears throat> we can receive life as it is rather than always react to it from a program we've acquired. So, so recognizing this in, in, say, in opening to the different icons, the different images that one experiences in India. Now, like I, I read books about when the British first arrived in India and the British missionaries, and, and they were so offended by some of the deities, like Shiva Lingams and Mother Kali. <coughs> the Mother Kali, <coughs> you know, it really looks uh, scary. And every day, uh, we, we'd pass this Kali shrine, Janto and I, and we'd, uh, in Benares, and there's this uh, this uh, black-faced female goddess with her tongue hanging out down to here and uh, demonic-looking with a necklace of skulls. And I can imagine what a Christian missionary would have thought, you know, that these people were demon worshippers because that's how the monotheistic mindset works, isn't it? God, you can't, you have no image of God then his son Jesus Christ is usually in European iconography 
looks like a, a Swedish uh, youth, you know, blonde and handsome and uh, kind of dreamy-like. So, so they say, well, want pretty images or reassuring images that, uh, that make us, you know, make us feel secure and safe. God isn't, we can't paint pictures of God, so we, we worship the idea of God, the God as an ideal. Because this makes us feel good <clears throat> to know that, that there's God and, and God loves me and that there's somebody outside there that, that you know, in spite of all the, the uh, scariness and, and, uh, anxiety around being human, there's something there that loves me anyway, in spite of all the suffering uh, that one experiences. So they have, we have abstract concepts and then we have reassuring icons of saints and, and then of Jesus, the Virgin Mary. These are all usually in a more kind of saintly, you know, with halos and forms that <clears throat> are very positive and inspiring. <clears throat> well, when you go to India, the, some of the forms are scary, like Mother Kali. Some of the deities are, are ferocious, and, or they like wrath and anger and war. And, and then there's Ganesha, rather comical-looking god to a Westerner, a pot-bellied man with, a, with an elephant's head. And uh, <clears throat> so you, and and this is a very popular god in India. <clears throat> so then, uh, Western mind thinks, "What's well, ridiculous? There's no, you know, worshiping God with a, with an elephant's head." And and, uh, <laughs> and then Mother Kali with a look at a demonic presence. You know, that's what demons look like. They're black faced with with their tongues hanging out. Is usually fierce, angry, voracious, murderous-looking female deity. So <clears throat> this is, uh, you know, I just reflecting on my own experience of this because I've been to India many times and I have a great interest in Indian culture anyway. So I find it fascinating. And just seeing the transformation over the years of the original, say, wasp, white Protestant, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant mindset, letting go of that to a more open way of looking at things. And then I noticed during these two months in Benares walking past the college shrine, I began to feel a real sense of the sacred in that. That, that everything's sacred in India. Everything. <clears throat> There's nothing that is not sacred. Can you say that? Nothing is not sacred? Two negatives. <laughs> well, I think you understand. <laughs> and so the, the world around you, you know, you're in an atmosphere that isn't divided into sacred and profane but in, a, in an atmosphere, in a, in a culture, in a, 
and a, and a city, a sacred city, where everything has its, is considered sacred. That doesn't mean they aren't kind of worldly and corrupt and violent and unpleasant things, but it's recognizing that the, the basic reality is, is the sacredness of life, of being, of consciousness, of presence, of here and now, rather than, than seeing it as just, just abiding in some special shrine or temple or holy place, you know, some spot you go to. The whole river, the Ganga River, is sacred. And yet everything, they throw everything in the river. So in, in Benares, you know, you go out in the river and you see, you know, you, they, one thing that's very nice about Benares is that there's not many, there's not much motor traffic on the river. So they have all these um, boats where the boatmen, right, you know, they're always after you to take you out on, in, onto the Ganga and row you up and down the, from the Asigat down to Rajgat. Now it's quite a several miles long in, uh, in, uh, in rowing this length from one end of the ghat to the other. And then of course you see life, there's so much life on, the, on these ghats taking place, the whole panorama, the whole spectrum from A to Z is, is busy happening right in front of your eyes. There's the this, this sacred going on, the, the pujas, the, the bathing in the river, to bathe in the river, uh, they're, they're burning bodies. There are two uh, burning gods, and uh, where they are actually visible, you know, they're burning the course, because the Hindus consider it the sacred city that you go, yeah, that dying, having, dying in Benares, and, is a very auspicious death. So there are a lot of old people dying in Benares. Then people getting married, you see them going, uh, the, the groom wearing some kind of uh, a spiffy tur turban and the, and the bride in a red sari, you know, and, and she's tied to her new husband and he's, they're going down to a blessing to be blessed by the river Ganga. So there's these wedding parties and, and then life, people living out the sadhus, this kind of incredible array of holy men and probably not so holy men. In all kinds of, you know, there's no kind of uniform like we have in Theravada Buddhism, three robes and all that, that they've got incredible variety of gear that you can wear or not wear. You don't have to wear anything there. <laughs> so it is quite a, an experience for the senses. There's a smell of incense, of feces, of Rotting corpses, you see corpses of animals in the of, of buffaloes or cows. They get thrown into the river. 
Uh, there is uh, one, a corpse of a pregnant woman. They think when, when a woman dies in pregnancy, then they, they, they put them, they just throw them into the Ganga River, or a baby, or a, or a holy man, are thrown into the river. So these corpses, you see, you know, human corpses de uh, decaying in the Ganga River. And then you hear all the sewage and that goes into the Ganga River. And so you think, how could it be holy? You know, it's got all these disgusting things going into it. You know, that's the Western mindset, isn't it? And yet, in another way of looking at it, seeing that this river is sacred and holy, so it accepts everything. The, the bride and groom, the, the, the corpses of animals, of sadhus, of, of babies, of pregnant, of pregnant women, um, the ashes and what's left over after, after the cremation get thrown in the Ganga. The buffaloes, water buffaloes bathe in the Ganga. Everybody bathes in the Ganga there. And, uh, and all the rubbish gets thrown in the Ganga. And the Ganga receives everything. So this is like also a, a way of reflecting, isn't it? Like, uh, you know, when we get into the, into the dualistic structures of thought, then we 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 have very strong ideas about what should and shouldn't be. So it's interesting to see one's own reactions to this. You know, the, seeing a human corpse, a woman, uh, a pregnant woman who's who's decaying in the in front of your eyes in the river, and everybody just allows that. You know, and, we, and then the Western mind thinks it's, it's terrible. It shouldn't allow that. <clears throat> and you, one feels repelled by the sight of it, doesn't want to even have to look at it. But yet, in the, my, the sacredness of life, it also includes the death and the decay. And this way of, of reflecting opens up, you know, this kind of getting out of this, this trap of dualistic thinking, where we're always passing judgment, where the complaining begins, isn't it? Complaining always comes from thinking about life. You know, it shouldn't be, it should be, it should be like that, shouldn't be like this, it's not fair, I don't like it, it's not right. And, and then we endlessly create uh, our misery for ourselves because of the way we're thinking. So in this case, uh, uh, living in Benares is like a challenge to that because if you think like that, you probably wouldn't like it. <laughs> you see too many things you don't like and don't understand. But in the emptiness, 
then say when one abides in emptiness, stays in a stillness of the mind, in the consciousness, then it's in a receptive state. So it receives it all. It's, it's open to the whole range of experience, the good, the bad, the, the, the beautiful bride, the rotting corpse, the, 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 um, everything that's happened, everything belongs. Because in this vast emptiness of consciousness, is all-embracing. Everything belongs. There's no, when we start thinking, imposing thought into consciousness, then we start preferring one thing over another. Then right and wrong and good and bad appear. And, and then we get attracted to the good and we are afraid of the bad. The right, we'll stand up for what is right and we'll be outraged and indignant about what's wrong with life. So we get caught in the in reaction, emotional reactions to the thoughts that we create. This is right. This is what should be. This is wrong. It shouldn't be. It's bad. It's good. I like and I don't like. So then the for us here, I'm a bunch of you this evening, just recognize that, that this is, uh, you know, you don't have to go to Benares to, to, to experience <laughs> But just to bring your attention, like, to a place that, that has that, that allows that life to flow uh, in it, because it's a sacred place. It's not an efficient modern city. Uh, you know, the way things should be according to modern ideas of urban planning and what's right and what's appropriate and good according to committees and, and so forth. It's an old ancient place. It's a city, a sacred place. In other words, the, the humans that tend to live there, the the, the, that have lived there in the past, regarded as a sacred place. So its atmosphere is very different from a city that is a commercial place, a city for convenience and modern life, for efficiency and sa sanitized and clean and so forth, and that according to what we like and what we want. So in, in our own kind of experience here, here and now is where it's at, and, you know, apply that kind of thing, the, the bad thoughts, the good thoughts, the clean thoughts, the dirty thoughts, the emotions you have, hatred and anger, fear, jealousy, greed, desire, doubt and worry, insecurity and uncertainty. They all belong in the present. If they arise, then that means that they belong in the present. Allowing things to be what they are. 
And in order to be able to do that, you have to have that confidence in, in being the knowing, in being aware, in the emptiness, in the stillness of the present moment, rather than just someone who's trying to control your mind and make it right or pure, make your mind pure, make your mind tranquil. Get your samadhi, you know, and get rid of your defilements. Uh, get rid of your childish emotions, uh, your fears, your neurotic fears and your hang-ups, your passions, your madness. <laughs> and, and you try to get rid of all that, and then you're trying to get enlightenment, nibbana, Goodness, be filled with metta and compassion. So these are all thoughts. The thought of metta and karuna in them is the thoughts. So if you've noticed, sometimes you can you can be very attached to the idea of compassion and be very angry with people who are not compassionate that you think are not <laughs> Everybody should be compassionate and order you, you know. <laughs> because when we're attached to, a, to an idea of compassion, it blinds us, you know. We hold it up as some great thing. And then when, and it is beautiful, it's inspiring as a concept. And so we hate people who we feel are not compassionate. You know, kill the forces of evil. You know, the United States is busy doing that. The Taliban, the Al-Qaeda, Saddam Hussein. Gleefully they killed Saddam Hussein's son last week. And, uh, you know, it's just uh, killing off the, the evil forces in the world. And it's rather frightening when you think the karma of all this, what's going to happen as the United States righteously marches on trying to destroy evil but acting on the very ignorance that evil thrives on. So, recognize that consciousness you know, this, we're experiencing that right now. You don't have to try to find it. Consciousness is, is here and now. So you know, then we have thoughts. Thoughts arise and cease. Emotions come and go. There's awareness in, in this state of mindfulness. That immediately, a mindfulness allows us to, to step out of the dualism of birth and death, right and wrong, good and bad. So sati panya, sati sampatanya is uh, the, the gate to the deathless. It's through this awareness, this awakened attentiveness in the present, that we learn to recognize it. Yeah. 
real, these words recognize or realize. It's not a created state, so it's not something you, you create through, through effort, but through, you recognize it through paying attention, through being aware. That is, and when you be, begin to trust it, when you have faith, then it opens, it includes everything that you can think or feel or experience through your senses. Good, bad, right, wrong, heavenly or demonic. So the real testing grounds is with your own mind. Oh, you know, the, the real, the practice is always here and now, not thinking, oh, I have to go to Benares now to really... <laughs> but, uh, you know, the practice is now, not... Well, don't postpone it for <clears throat> thinking that you're going to be able to do it somewhere else. The, you know, so it's an ongoing challenge, isn't it? Because we forget, it's easy to fall back into the old complaining, whinging <clears throat> habits we have of thinking how it should be and shouldn't be and what I like and don't like and what I want and don't want. So after this is a reflection for this evening.